Hello, you're listening to a Medieval Madness podcast. To see the accompanying visuals, please check out our YouTube channel. Cheers! Unfortunately, back in the day, it wasn't quite as simple as, I'm sorry, it's not you, it's me. Let's travel back in time and look at the medieval way of ending a marriage, divorce by combat. Welcome to Medieval Madness. St. Augustine's ideal of the unbreakable marriage dominated the Middle Ages. By the late medieval period, the marriage vows contained the phrase, till death do us part, emphasising the seriousness of the commitment that was being made. In Europe, the church influenced every part of people's lives, and the disapproval of divorce was a Christian invention. Divorce was accepted in ancient Jewish and Roman law, as well as early Germanic law, so it took a while for the medieval church to uphold the idea of marriage as a permanent union. In the early Middle Ages, divorce and remarriage were permitted on several grounds, such as adultery. In fact, divorce by mutual consent was quite common in most of Northern Europe during the 7th and 8th centuries. A man could remarry after five years if his wife left him, but only with the bishop's consent. If a woman committed adultery, a man could remarry, but if a husband did the same, then the wife could not. Although, a woman was allowed to remarry if her husband had become a slave because of some offence that he had perpetrated, but only if it was her first marriage. Got that? Both men and women whose partner had been taken captive or abducted by an enemy were able to remarry also. In the mid and later period, divorce had two forms, either separation where a couple could avoid sharing a bed and table, or annulment based on the grounds that the marriage was never valid to start with. With a separation, the couple remained married and could not remarry until the other spouse died. It was the custom, especially in noble families, for marriages to be arranged. It was usually the men or brothers of a bride that exchanged her for land or wealth. Once an agreement between the two parties was reached at the betrothal stage, the couples were able to actually meet. This was followed by some form of wedding ceremony. The bride was handed over along with her dowry and a huge banquet would be held. If the families held great status and wealth, the drinking, eating and celebrating might go on for days. It wasn't until the 12th century that the clergy became involved with either the negotiations or the ceremony itself, unless the marriage was a royal one. Throughout Europe during the early Middle Ages, the new couple were given a gift from the father of the groom known as a mourning gift. This was a contribution towards their finances. Later, it became common for men to arrange matches with girls who would be exchanged for a bride price. Then, the girls would be bought by the groom's family for cash, property, or for something as trivial as a horse, depending upon the family's wealth or lack thereof. By the 11th century, the bride price was replaced with the dowry, where it was the bride's family that now took responsibility for presenting their daughter with a gift on her betrothal. In the Low Countries, England and Northern France, this became part of the marriage ceremony and was presented at the door of the church. The poorer the couple were, then the shorter the negotiations took but once discussions were finished and the betrothal had been announced, the celebrations could take place. On the 6th of January, 1114, in Worms, Germany, 12-year-old Empress Matilda of England was married to the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry V. 
Their betrothal had been proclaimed in Utrecht in the Netherlands four years earlier. There were too many wedding guests to be counted, but the list included five dukes, 30 bishops, and five archbishops. Jesters and jongleurs entertained, and there were many gifts presented to the couple. In northern France during the early 12th century, Arnold II of Ardres was married to Gertrude, and their wedding party consisted of three days of feasting with food, drink, games, and music. The wedding of Princess Euraca of Lyon and Castile to King Garcia Radmir IV of Navarra occurred in the mid-1130s. It was such a lavish affair that the bride had a military escort. The men enjoyed tournament games on horseback, and there were pig and bull fights. The couple received expensive gifts, including many dishes of gold and silver, as well as male and female mules loaded with royal riches. Of course, not everyone was a royal princess. Life for the peasant in medieval Europe was definitely harder than for those of the nobility, but in the world of love and courtship, they were luckier in that they could marry for love, although they did need their lord's permission. Peasant women usually married at a much older age than those that were highborn. They were needed at home from an early age to work for the family, and for as long as possible. In England during the early 13th century, a fine known as a merchet would need to be paid to the lord of the manor at the marriage of a serf. The French had a similar levy. Many women would pay this themselves rather than relying on funds from their fathers, brothers, or future husbands. It would take a considerable amount of time to save up for such a payment, which also may explain why peasant women married later than noble girls. Couples in the lower classes would probably meet at festivals or markets, or may even know a suitable partner from the same village. If they were caught having sex before marriage, there was a fine known as a legavite, although only the woman was fined and not the man. Despite all of these celebrations of love and romance, things did occasionally turn sour, and sometimes separation and divorce were unavoidable. Married couples were obliged to consent to their partner's sexual demands, regardless as to whether they were in the mood or not. Church law stated that sex within marriage was compulsory. If either partner would not or could not have sex, then the marriage could be deemed illegal. In law, both men and women could accuse their spouse of being impotent in order to dissolve an unconsummated marriage. Usually the woman would declare her wish to be a mother and her husband's inability to fulfill that need. With divorce proving difficult, one way for a woman to end her marriage was by claiming her husband was not fulfilling his duties in the bedroom. But court was mindful of deception and would not just accept a plea of impotence without proof. The only way for a man to prove that he could complete his carnal obligations was to get an erection whilst watched by several legal experts. A physical exam was performed of the man's genitalia by honest women, who would check the man's member for its colour, shape, and number. Women didn't escape embarrassment either. They would have to be examined gynaecologically to prove that they were still intact and that the marriage had not been consummated. They would be asked to urinate on demand because it was wrongfully thought that women could not perform this bodily function if their hymen was still there. If the man wasn't able to ejaculate or the woman wasn't able to pee when asked to, then they could be freed from their vows. Couples were interrogated about every part of their love life, even their sexual positions. And even if a man admitted that he was impotent, he would have to have this corroborated by witnesses. In Europe, medieval laws were set by the church, and sex for enjoyment was considered to be a sin. Having sex was all about procreation, and excessive sex using improper techniques or positions other than the missionary was seen as immoral. 
If it could be proved at trial that a man had been forcing his wife into these lustful positions which would not result in pregnancy, then that could also be grounds for divorce. There were times when a judge wanted more evidence and demanded a trial by Congress. That meant that a husband and wife had to attempt to have intercourse in front of several onlookers. And now it's probably a good time to ask you not to kink shame the peasants of the Middle Ages in the comment section, but do feel free to leave a comment and like this video. Two trials have been found in the records of the city of York in England, where women endeavoured to end their marriages because of their husband's alleged inability to procreate. In 1368, Nicholas Cantaloupe went into hiding after his wife Catherine went to court for an annulment. Obviously, he did not want to be physically examined, as Catherine swore that when Nicholas was asleep in bed, she had tried to feel for his genitals, but had found that area to be, quote, as flat as a man's hand. Two years later, three honest women were asked to examine John Sanderson and found that he was also suffering from some form of deformity of the testicles. Both of these marriages were annulled. Known as the Judgment of God, trial by combat allowed the divine to settle the argument when the ruling classes either could not or would not make a decision. Two warriors of equal strength and ability fought one another until one of them either yielded or died. The winner was decided by the will of God. So any bid to influence the outcome of the contest, either by using an opponent who was much stronger than the other or by any further means, was supposed to cause godly anger. The hiring of a champion was against the rules, but the practice often took place. In many cases, trial by combat was used as the means of deciding justice. By the late medieval period, there were two types of judicial combat. The duel of law, fought by civilians in both civil and criminal cases, and the duel of chivalry. Although the duel of chivalry began during the reign of Edward III, it didn't become popular until the late 14th century when it was usually fought by nobles for an accusation of treason. In 1306, King Philip VI of France set out his ceremonies for the wager of battle. There he specified four terms that needed to be met before a trial by combat could go ahead. 1. The crime must have happened. 2. It must be a capital crime such as murder, rape or treason. 3. The accused must be sufficiently suspected of the crime. And 4. Every other legal avenue has already been exhausted and the only method of conviction left was proof by one's body. It was believed in medieval law that the body gave testimony against the accused. That is why using torture was justified. A judicial duel was another way to find out the hidden truth. It was a way to test an oath, as each combatant swore that they were the only one telling the truth. Obviously, one of them was lying, but which one? In the Middle Ages, the duel was a public and conclusive way to answer this question. One very famous trial by combat occurred in 1386 in France during the Hundred Years' War. The French knight Jean de Carouges had proven himself a brave warrior in Scotland, although he had lost a considerable amount of money whilst fighting there. In contrast, his one-time friend Jacques Legris, who had not fought in Scotland, had grown richer at home. In the January, Jean set off for Paris to collect his Scottish campaign wages. En route, he met his rival Legris and angry words were exchanged. Jean's wife, Marguerite, was alone at home with her husband away, and her mother-in-law had gone to Saint-Pierre-Sedive on business, taking the servants with her, which meant that it was Margrethe herself who had to answer the door when a visitor called. It was Adam Louvel who spoke about a debt that her husband owed. Suddenly he announced that Jacques Legris was outside and had to speak with her. 
Margrethe was not comfortable and said it was not convenient, but Louvel insisted that Legree, quote, loves you passionately, he will do anything for you, and he greatly desires to see you. With that, the two men pushed their way inside. After finding that Magrette was resistant to his advances and to an offer of money, Legree raped her whilst Louvel held her down. Afterwards, Legree threatened death to Magrette and her family if she told anyone what had happened. On his return, Jean found his wife quiet and withdrawn. She told him about the assault. Enraged, Jean began legal proceedings against Legree, but there were no witnesses. Count Pierre, who also happened to be a patron of Legree, dismissed the case, stating that Magrette had either imagined or dreamt the attack. So, Jean made the brave decision to ask the king for a judicial duel. Jean threw down his gauntlet at the Palais de Justice in Paris, in front of the king, Legree, and a huge crowd of people, but the Court of Justice decided to hear the case as a criminal one. It was all Paris talked about for the whole summer. By this point, Margrethe was clearly pregnant, although there was never any issue about the parentage of the child, because sadly, medieval doctors decreed that it was impossible for a baby to be conceived in rape. Adam Louvel and Margrethe's maid were both questioned and tortured as they were commoners. A claim was made by Legree that Jean had beaten his wife into making a false accusation. Legree said he was 25 miles away with his friend Jean Bellatou when the alleged assault happened, but it looked bad for Legree when the man who provided his alibi was also arrested for rape himself later that week in Paris. Unable to reach a decision, Parliament judged that Jacques Legree and Jean de Carouges IV would fight to the death. If Jean died during the duel, his wife Margrethe was to be burnt at the stake for her deceit. After months of preparation, thousands of spectators arrived at the arena of the Abbe Saint Martin de Champs on the 29th of December 1386. At midday, the king arrived and the duel began. Jean and Legree sat on horseback, both wearing plate armour, and the crowd went wild. Each carried a lance, battle axe, longsword, and dagger. The king knighted Legree so that the men were of equal status, and after both men swore an oath to God, the Virgin Mary and Saint George, Jean kissed his wife and promised that he would return. After a clash of lances in which neither of the men were hurt, they dismounted. Jean slipped on the wet ground and Legree stabbed him in the leg, but Jean was able to recover and lunged at Legree, pinning him down. After smashing his faceplate, Jean thrust his dagger into his opponent's neck, killing him. Then he marched over to his wife and embraced her to the sound of the cheering crowds. Jean was awarded with great riches and a place in the royal household whilst the body of Legree was unceremoniously lugged back to Paris where it was displayed on the gibbet of Montfaucin. Because there was so much public hype and hysteria over the incident, Parliament deemed that it was to be the last judicial duel permitted by a court in France. During the Middle Ages, if a woman was accused of a crime, she could demand that the verdict was determined independently and use trial by combat. She could elect a champion who was willing to fight in her place. Usually when a woman fought for herself, it was because the opponent was her own husband. Maybe because the person she would customarily choose as her champion was the person she was presently fighting. Marital disputes were commonplace, and European law allowed a woman to take up arms against her spouse if she so wished. In 1467, the German Hans Talhofer wrote a fencing manual. He describes general and advanced techniques for sword fighting using daggers, shields, spears, and other weapons. He gives advice on how to hold a weapon, how to stand, attack, and counterattack. 
He also devotes a whole chapter to combat between a man and a woman, using detailed drawings with captions to explain the procedure. According to German law, to make it a fair fight, unlike in standard duels, the man was not allowed to choose a weapon. He was put into a three-foot wide hole up to his waist. He was armed with three wooden clubs. The wife, whom it was assumed was not familiar with weapons of war, was provided with three stones wrapped in a piece of cloth. Each stone weighed between one and five pounds. To even things out even further, the husband also had one hand tied behind his back. Although the man could not leave the confines of the pit, the woman was able to run around it freely. If the man touched the edge of the hole with either his hand or arm, then he had to forfeit one of his clubs. After losing them all, he would continue unarmed. If the woman tried to hit him with her sling whilst he was relinquishing a club to the judges, then she would have to forfeit one of her stones. The book shows two differing versions of the contest, one where the wife is victorious, showing her holding the man in a headlock, the other shows the man winning by dragging his wife into the hole with him. There are even instructions on the type of clothing to be worn, showing a kind of tight-fitting hooded bodysuit with stirrup legs. As well as this, the book includes tips on the common mistakes to avoid and techniques for getting out of a hold. Although the duel was hardly ever a fight to the death, sadly, defeat for either of the parties always resulted in the loss of a life anyway. The man would be executed with honour in the town square, and the woman would be buried alive. Truly medieval. And on that cheery note, I just want to say a big thank you for watching this video. Please do subscribe if you enjoy the content of this channel as we do upload videos every single week, and I'll see you soon. Cheers!